for listening to Drink 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears. Hey, Dream 10X. Welcome to episode 22. It's your boy JC and my beautiful co-host. Dr. C. <laughs> How you doing this evening? 22. Episode 22. Wow. We have committed to 52 episodes, you know that? Yeah, I do. We're only at 22. I think it's a lot. So we still have 30 more to go. We do. <laughs> so here we go. This time we are talking about a book by Tom Perkins called Valley Boy, The Education of Tom Perkins. Who's Tom Perkins? Well, that's an interesting question. So I'm looking at Instagram one night and I see this beautiful sailing vessel. And it's the most fascinating thing I've ever seen. And I look at the name of it. It's called the Maltese Falcon. Ooh, good name. And I'm curious who could own such a yacht because it's gigantic and it's beautiful and it's high tech. It's obviously Mm -hmm. high tech. And so I looked up who the, I Googled who the owner of the Maltese Falcon was. And it's this guy, Tom Perkins. And so I wanted to find out more about Tom Perkins and who he was and everything. So I bought, I bought his book and come to find out he's a, he was a very well-known uh, Silicon Valley venture capitalist. And that's where he got all his money from, basically, to, to uh, build this beautiful boat. Wow. And so you and I are into sailing and, yes. and being on the water and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about this magnificent machine that he built. Um, the Maltese Falcon was just one of his yachts. He had many, many yachts oh. because he was a billionaire. He, he was worth about $8 billion when he died. What do you do with multiple yachts? <laughs> you sail them a lot <laughs> with lots of different women. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, he sailed around the world a lot. He, he loved being on the water. Um, his favorite island I read in the book was St. Bart's. Have you ever been to St. Bart's? I haven't. Have you? No, I haven't. Oh. And I, I would love to go now. Yeah. Because it was one of his favorite spots. Is it the U.S. Virgin Islands? It's not. I don't think it's. I think it's French. French? Okay. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. In fact, he wrote the end of his book while he was sitting on his yacht at, oh at St. Bart's. <laughs> Can you imagine? Some people. Oh, I'd love to, love to be like him. But so yeah, multiple yachts. Oh, this is a, there's some really cool stuff about him that kind of intersects with some of our our interests and things. Um, so this is a very technologically advanced yacht. It uh, employed a technology for the sailing the sail rig called the Dyna rig, and so you, say that again. It's called the Dyna rig. Diner. Dyna. Dyna. D, D, okay. Kind of a dynamic rig. Oh, okay. Of. Okay. And it was invented um, before him, but he employed it in his yacht. And basically, it allows one person to unfurl the sails for the entire vessel. It's, it's oh, all I've automated. Oh, I've seen those. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and so this is a big sailing boat, 289-footer. 289-footer. Oh, so awesome. <laughs> the, the, the spars, the mass on this thing are 58 meters 58 meters, 18 stories tall, and they're all made of carbon fiber. Oh. This is a, I mean, just a beautiful, 
Yeah, beautiful, huge boat. Um, and the only reason it could come into being is because of the amount of testing that went into the individual components. Mm -hmm. This is another aspect I think is really fascinating. So it's state, it was state-of-the-art at the time. Um, it, a lot of advanced technology. The most carbon fiber of any vessel um, used anywhere except maybe outside of the U.S. Air Force and their stealth bombers and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, which ironically, all of this carbon fiber, it was built in Turkey. So all this carbon fiber is being shipped to Turkey. And that raised a bunch of alarm bells with you know the government saying, hey, are you building missiles? Are you having missiles built in Islamic Turkey? Kind of wow. <laughs> no, it's just a really big mast. <laughs> Or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> <laughs> so very technologically advanced vessel. The only way they could pull it off was by testing the individual components using computer simulations and computer-assisted uh, computer design. Mm. And so there was, there was a lot of individual component testing. And uh, they really didn't know how the whole thing was going to come together and work until the whole boat was actually out on the water. Wow. And after three hours of testing, they realized, hey, it's all, it's all going to be good. I, I don't know how you knew after only three hours of testing, but he felt really confident after three hours on the water testing that everything was going to work the way it was, was supposed to work. Three hours! 289 Incredible. feet. It's an engineering marvel. What would Jim Brown say about that? Uh, I don't know. We should ask him. We should. <laughs> you know anything about the Maltese? Hey, Jim, if you're listening, <laughs> let us know your thoughts on the Maltese Falcon. It's not a multi-hull, but... Um, it was designed and built by an Italian company mm -hmm. in Turkey. So... Anyway, that's kind of the, the backstory on this beautiful boat that caught my attention and, may, and led me to who Tom Perkins was. Very cool. So, Mr. Perkins, Valley Boy. Okay, yeah. fine, for sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah, like totally. I, I keep thinking of that every time. Yeah. Totally. So, yeah, um, grew up in New York. He was born in 30, 1932. And he died in uh, 2016 at the age of 84. Net worth was around $8 billion. Wow. He studied electrical engineering and computer science at MIT. Mm. Graduated from Harvard University MBA program. And at Harvard, he studied under Professor Georges Doriot. Georges Doriot, who was a, a, a Frenchman who came to the United States and became a... I think he was a he was known as the general, but I'm not sure what his actual rank was in the hmm. army. But he was in World War II. He was a quartermaster, and uh, became a, um, a very popular, famous professor at Harvard. And um, this guy Doriot also founded, uh, let's see, the Heck Executive HEC Executive MBA. At Paris. Oh, really? Was a very popular MBA program. Wow. Global MBA. Okay. He also founded NSEAD, I-N-S-E-A-D, which that is another top graduate business school mm -hmm. uh, in France, but it also has campuses around the world, including San Francisco. And uh, this guy started the first venture capital firm. Um, uh, that was a full-time venture capital firm. So uh, George's... How do you say J? How do you say G E O R G E S? George. George. Mm -hmm. 
George Doriot um, was really the first venture capitalist in America. And so Tom Perkins studied under him at Harvard. And so that's how Tom Perkins got his, his really his, his ideas and his thoughts and his start um, through venture capital. Wow, very cool. Yeah, I thought that was a, a good angle to learn about there. Um, the other cool thing about Doriot was that he, his company funded DEC, the company, DEC. I don't know that. Uh, Digital Equipment Corporation. And uh, when I was in my younger years, I really lusted after the DEC Alpha 64-bit risk processor machine. I really wanted those things because they were like state-of-the-art fast at the time. So I thought that was that was interesting. Oh, yeah, DEC Alpha. forgot about that. <laughs> um, okay, so while Perkins was at Harvard doing his MBA, he worked for a company called General Radio Company. And um, they made certain types of electronic measuring equipment. And he was tasked with kind of surveying the field for other companies that did similar things. And he, and he came upon HP, Hewlett Packard. Mm-hmm. And Hewlett Packard, um, while their equipment was not as pretty, not as nicely packaged as uh, General Radio's, um, General Radio was, also, was a, a Boston-based company, by the way. So mm-hmm. he's up in Boston doing his thing. Good place to sail. Uh, Yeah, good place to sail, good place to row. Um, So while he's doing his survey, he discovers HP and discovers that he really likes the company. So um, after he, and he decides he wants to work for them after he graduates. So he sends them a letter and they say, yeah, come on out to New York. We're doing a trade show, IEEE trade show. Um, we'd like to meet you. So he gets hops on the train, goes to New York, and uh, goes to the IEEE trade show, and he discovers Bill Hewitt, Hewlett and Dave Packard setting up the, the stand for the, for the trade show. And he's impressed by that because he's like, none of the bigwigs at GR would ever set up their own stand at a trade show. But here are the two founders of HP are setting up the stand. And so he offers to help them set up while talking to him, and they, give a, they, they interview him right then on the spot while he's, he's helping them put up the thing, right? And uh, by the end of their discussion, they're like, yeah, we'd really like to hire you. And, and so um, he decides to come out and work for them. And so Dave Packard, uh, one of the founders of Hewlett Packard, becomes his mentor. And um, it, it becomes a kind of a lifelong uh, relationship between the two mm-hmm. through, through that. Or he, he got in on the ground floor. He, he was actually one of the first MBAs that they had ever hired at HP. <laughs> That's amazing. Which kind of worked against him because they didn't know really what to think about MBAs at the yeah. time, especially Ivy League ones. But, um, but being I, able to I, like interact with somebody at that level while they're in the middle of you know setting things up and, and being on the ground mm-hmm. floor themselves mm-hmm. and, and getting that experience and being able to converse in that very like low-key manner, I think is really fascinating and uh, really shows a lot about the CEOs and their mentality and Wow, what an amazing company. Yeah, yeah, it really was an amazing company. It was. I don't know about now. <laughs> Back in the day. Back in the day, it was a really cool company. Yeah, HP is like, it's like core to Silicon Valley and what it is today. So. Um, so he worked there for a while and then he got restless and decided to leave and went to go work for Booz Allen. Oh, oh no. Oh, did I read that right? Wah, wah. <laughs> yeah. 
wants to go work for Booz Allen. Apparently he made a lot more money there. Um, but didn't last long at Booz either. And then he went to go work for a, a startup company uh, called OTI. And they were doing some laser R&D there. They were trying to... And so uh, Tom Perkins was really into lasers, which is another thing that intrigued me about him because as a kid, I loved lasers. Light amplification by the stimulated emission of radiation. I, wow. As a kid... <laughs> I say it again three times fast. <laughs> As a kid, I loved ra- lasers. Yeah. And I remember uh, as a 10-year-old trying to make a laser with a telescope that I had and mm-hmm. a, a slide projector. And like I thought, well, if I put the slide projector on the telescope, I could somehow amplify this beam and stuff. But it never worked, and I was very frustrated. But anyway, always loved lasers, so I really liked to, I, I liked that about him. Um, OTI, he fell out with the other founder of the company, and so he left. And then... Um, he came, he came back to HP after that. So he, this is like his third company, comes back to HP again. And while he's at HP, he still got this itch to make this laser that um, is as common or as, uh, as cheap as a light bulb mm. that you can turn on and off. And, and not, you know, I guess they were big and bulky at the time, and he was trying to make them smaller and more compact and, and more easily, easy to use. And so he's working at HP and um, decides that, he, you know, he has this idea for this laser that could be a big hit, but he's not sure how to do it because he doesn't have any money and he's newlywed and his wife is pregnant. And um, so he's trying to figure it out. So he goes to his mentor, Dave Packard, who's the owner of HP, one of the owners, and says, hey, I got this idea for this laser, and I'm wondering if I could like work on it in my spare time, if you'd mind. And, and Dave was like, you know, very entrepreneurial and fully supported him and said, yeah, yeah, yeah go for it, man. Just don't use, don't spend too much of HP's time doing it. And um, so he did, and he... Then the next step was to get his wife's permission mm. to take their $15,000 savings and um, try to get something, get some prototypes built and try to sell it. So he did that. His wife agreed and said, yeah, let's go for it. And um, so they're in California at the time in the Berkeley area and um, had some sailing connections with this guy who... Uh, had a boat that was near theirs, uh, moored near the boat that they had. So he's been sailing ever, you know, ever since then, way back when. Um, this guy was making glass for something uh, as a hobby or something like. He was a glass blower as a hobby, mm. and uh, Tom Perkins needed glass tubes for his lasers. So he asked him if he would help blow some glass tubes for his early prototype lasers. To help them get started, and in exchange, would give him a third of the company. Wow, nice. And then he had another friend at his old company at OTI, Dick, who um, he, he offered to give another third of the company for managing it. Mm-hmm. And he kept a third of the company for just having the idea and putting his own money in it and stuff like that. So there's three investors in this company. It's called Universal, Universal Labs. Is that right? Universal, UL, University Labs. And they, after a while, they succeeded in building. They had some, you know, it was complicated and they had a lot of pitfalls and almost went broke, just like most companies do. 
but ultimately succeeded in manufacturing a laser that they could sell to like construction companies mm. for keeping sewage pipes straight and things like that. And so all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but over time, they started getting more and more orders. And then they had the problem of, I'm so success- successful, I need money to deal with my success, to yeah. expand. And I think that was a really key takeaway of mine from this book is that, you know, we're always talking like, yeah, I never take venture capital because then you lose your company to the investors. But they couldn't grow unless they got money. Mm. He would never have been the success that he was if he did not get venture capital to grow. grow. Because you couldn't have one guy <laughs> blowing all those glass yeah. tubes for all the orders that they were getting. Right? Yeah. So they needed the money to invest in uh, a production line to you know automate the, the creation of these glass tubes and all the other stuff that, that went into manufacturing a laser. Mm-hmm. So um, they, they eventually got the, the venture capital and uh, were able to fulfill their orders and event, you know basically became a success. And um, then they had another problem that they became even more successful that he was at a crossroads should he did he leave HP and, mm-hmm. and run this company full-time or you know what was he going to do because he couldn't do both then and he didn't want to leave HP again <laughs> that's too bad a little awkward <laughs> so he had this other friend who was a um, a banker there a prominent banker in San Francisco who was investing in another company called Spectrophysics and they had uh, they were heavy on the technology side but light on the profits mm. whereas university labs was heavy on the profits and a little bit lighter on the tech and he thought it would be a good uh, merger oh that was smart so he helped arrange the sale of university labs to spectrophysics and made the three of them very very wealthy <laughs> And he Not never foresight. left HP. And he still works full-time he, he still, for HP. But his friend Nick, Dick yeah. retired at age 25. Oh, that would retired, be amazing. Retired, he was set. They were all set. Yeah. But but Tom Perkins continued working at HP. What did he love about HP? And then the other guy just wanted to, to sail boats and stuff. So yeah. he, he was gone too. <laughs> well, I mean, HP is a great company. And in fact... Um, Later on in his career, after he left HP again, he came back to be on the board, and, and and there's all kinds of drama about being on the board that I don't really, you know, I didn't find that interesting with Carly Fiorina and and all that stuff. You know, it's all board politics. It's not intriguing to me. But what I think is interesting though is that he had the opportunity to walk away and go sail at the time or do whatever he wanted to he do, didn't. and yet he still stayed working at HP. Yeah. Like. That's the, I can't even wrap my head around that. Yeah. So yeah. well, that's I think part of why he became such a huge success mm. is he didn't he didn't just quit right then. Yeah. He kept going. And in fact, um, after that, after a while, he he did leave HP again though, and uh, he hooked up with this guy called Eugene Kleiner, uh, who's an Austrian of Austrian descent, and they went they formed a. a a company and went around the country gathering people's money. Okay. <laughs> I, I just think this is so funny that you could go out and get people to give you a money, get give you money to put in a pot of money, to build a pot of money basically, 
that you then take that pot of money and invest in companies to try to grow that money for your investors. So it's kind of like crowdfunding for other, the modern day crowdfunding, eh, but instead of one no, project. But no crowd, really. Yeah, well, getting money for other people in one pot. Yeah, but not so much of a crowd. It's, it's yeah, a small crowd. Very small a targeted crowd. crowd. Targeted crowd, okay. yeah, yeah. So, so they they went around, got a bunch of money, and then um, their intent was to fund tech tech companies mm. and um, manage them and bring them to success, and then you know return an investment, return give a return to their investors mm-hmm. on that. So they now were following Georgia, George George Dorian's model of venture capital. So, so. Now, this is how he became, you know, known in the Silicon Valley for being such a prominent uh, venture capitalist. Very cool. However, they couldn't initially. They could not find in anybody to invest in. Nobody wanted money. Nobody would take money from them. Was it the same dilemma that we have, where it's like, well, I don't want people to run our company, or what? Why did they have such a hard time? It just wasn't a th- so much of a thing then. Huh. And um, yeah, in the early days of venture capitalists, it wasn't that big of a thing, and. They couldn't find anybody, so they basically created their own companies. Oh, well, that works too. <laughs> yeah, and, um, you know, they they were hugely successful there. And then, of course, they the companies they did invest in, they, they managed as well. And then they went on to fund a number of companies. Some of, um, some, here are some of the names. Tandem Computers. I haven't heard of them, but they were a, a big success. They developed fault-tolerant computers. Uh, what behind, does that mean? Um, highly available computers that, you know, wouldn't go down very often mm. for, like, banks and uh, stock exchanges and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, a, a gene therapy kind of drug company called Genentech. They, they came up with drugs for cancer patients, heart patients, stuff like that. Hugely successful, still around today. Hmm. A company called Home Healthcare of America. I think I've heard of that. I'm not sure what they do. LSJ Logic, Compact Computers. Really? Yes, that I know. <laughs> they they were they gave them money. Netscape. You heard of them? Mm-hmm. I <laughs> <Yeah>. sure have. <laughs> Sun Microsystems. Oh, your guys. Yeah, <laughs> one of my favorite companies in the world. Sun Microsystems. They funded. They're not around anymore, unfortunately. Uh, Amazon. Oh. Google, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> also funded those guys. So, um, so once you see this list of companies, you're like, well, okay, no wonder he's yeah. extremely wealthy because these are very successful tech companies. And also, prolific sailor, a lot of lot of vessels that he owned, including the Maltese. Oh, I, I forgot to mention the captain that he got for a lot of his vessels, including the Maltese Falcon. His name was Chris Gartner. And he was from Golden, Colorado. No way, yeah. dude. <laughs> Went to the University of Colorado. So that's another like intersection. Yeah. Wow, it was really interesting. We spent some time in Golden and, and really love it there. So uh, it's not a sailing place. So <laughs> No, middle of Colorado. No. Golden, Colorado. To become a, a skipper of the Maltese Falcon. Huh. That's a journey right there. Um... I also thought this, this, you might find this interesting, that his junior year at MIT, he worked in the Netherlands for a company called Philips NV in Eindhoven. 
Oh, know? huh. No, I don't know that. No? Okay. My parents might, but I don't know. So while he was there, he developed a, a profound appreciation for the Dutch because mm-hmm. of their hard work ethic and biking to work. You know, mm-hmm. they bike everywhere, I guess. And yeah. So... <laughs> um, they're also really good shipbuilders, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's what my dad is there. <laughs> yeah, so he he really had a a, a good appreciation for the Dutch, and um, he, he eventually came back to the states, and then was uh, later on in his career asked to serve on a board of a Dutch company uh, called Philips, and he made some some more connections through that board, and one of the guys that he knew from there. Um, knew of a, an inventor, a Dutch inventor by the name of Jan Sloot. Sloot? Yeah, Jan Sloot. What? Okay, nothing. Okay. And <laughs> this, this is such a kind of ironic, funny, sad story. But this inventor had spent the last 15 years of his life building this um, uh, video compression technology that allowed you to store videos on a smart card. Mm. So a very small... Um, memory device um, and so the technology was way ahead of its time and he got you know he through his connections he, he got word of this inventor and decided to invest in the invent in the inventor's idea so um, he could finally take his invention and start a company from it and um, Tom Perkins said I'm gonna put money in your idea and let's let's start a company and uh, to formalize that he flew to his house with his friend and they met with this inventor and his family and to celebrate they had chocolate cake and champagne Yummy. and he the way he describes this the inventor's face in this book is one of just pure bliss like he was just so happy to have you know after 15 years of working hard on this tech finally had gotten to a point where he could start a company and, and could be successful with mm. it and um so he so Perkins leaves, gets on an airplane to go back home, and then um, the next day calls up his friend to say, "Hey, you know, um, let's go. I'm really excited about this technology. Let's let's um, let's get let's get this company going." And his friend says, "I'm sorry to tell you, but right after you left, Jan had a massive pulmonary uh, embolism. Uh, his he had a heart attack. He had a oh massive heart attack right after you left and died." Oh my god! And took with him the tech technology <gasps> behind the whole thing. Like there was nothing written down. There was no code <gasps> for it. He had it somehow. On, they couldn't. They could never find the tech, the the actual compiler that the guy had the the source code for the compiler that he had written. And That's so, so sad. So it was, it was like basically gone after he His died. Legacy. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so ironic. Like he finally finally pushed this boulder up to the top of the. <laughs> That's success. Then that's just life, you know. Meanwhile, Perkins becomes a multi-billionaire. You just oh, never no. know. Yeah. You never know how the dice is gonna roll. For yeah. You or whatever. Oh, so anyway, I thought that was a really interesting story. I don't want to be Jan. I want to be. Tom. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> don't be a Jan. Let's be, be Tom. Tom. <laughs> So anyway, those were the, the highlights. He also wrote another book called Sex and the Zingle, Single Zillionaire, which is kind of a, um, I, I it's it's uh, it's a fictional account of a really rich person mm-hmm. who's like a you know uh, 
maybe it's his alter ego or something like that. I don't know, but I thought it might be interesting to read. But yeah. Apparently he had a lot of fun with that, and <laughs> all the proceeds that he got from that book, he donated to Harvard. So, really? Yeah. A little tidbit there. But um, those are the big highlights, and so it was an interesting book. It sounds uh, really fun. It's not chronological, and it kind of skips all over the place. He just had fun with it, and he died not too far, not too long after writing the book, and mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting insight into his life and his loves and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So I recommend it. It's a good book, Valley Boy, The Education of Tom Perkins, one of the more prominent venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. And that's it for episode 22 from entrepreneur to becoming a venture capitalist. Sounds like a fun adventure. <laughs> Talk to you guys next week. Thanks Bye. for listening. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>